Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. I was at Bressy Rance a couple weeks ago on my tour. I like that language. I'm going to use that. And uh, Pastor Samuel announced that he was releasing another book on marriage, and he quoted me in it. I've never been quoted in a book before. I said, that's pretty cool. Where, how do the royalties in that work? He didn't, he didn't say. But, but he, was, he was in the, it was the beginning of the service. I think he was introducing me, and he, he mentioned that, and he, he said the quote in the book was, if you're fighting in your marriage, it's because your marriage is working. So be encouraged. And I thought, is that encouraging? Does it? And then he kind of paused. He said, well, there's more to it than that. There's more. It makes sense. But it's one of those things. It's like the fact that my family found a house that values my voice honestly kind of surprises me. Like if you think that's, that's, my, that's what I bring. If your marriage is working, good job. You know, if you guys are fighting, it means you're fighting through, hopefully. And you think, man, I, the fact that we found a house that really, that wants, that wants to go into the muck so that they can get to the freedom, that's just such a sacred thing. That's such a, this is a rare place. You're in a place that is not common. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, just before that, I, they honored me. They asked me because uh, the, the speaker that week at San Marcos had gotten sick. It was, it was like Friday. And they said, Brian, would you come? We're kicking off the relationships. Would you come and be on a panel with Pastor Leanne and answer questions? And I'm like, if I get to sit next to Pastor Leanne and just be associated with her wisdom, like they'll just remember me as, she was, as they were hearing her wisdom. And I can just, I spent 35 minutes reiterating what she said. It was, I sounded brilliant. Um, I'm like, absolutely, I'm there, I'm in. And one of the things she said that was so... Man, it just struck me, and it connected to something that God's been talking to me a lot about in my own Bible reading. Who, who are my Bible in a year people? Oh, is that so good? It's only February. If you guys aren't on this, it's, just start right now. Last year, I started in March, and I just did two days for like three months. It was so, it's such a good practice. Because um, I've been reading, or this is several weeks ago, I was reading through Exodus. And when I was sitting next to Presley Ann, she was, she was, actually expounding a different point. She wasn't saying that th this comment was one of like the, it was, it was like the throwaway. It was just, it was just a subtle part of the, like a bigger point that she was making. And sometimes when you're around somebody like Pastor Leanne, it's like the stuff that just falls out on accident is some of the, just the most amazing wisdom. And she, I remember kind of pausing and slowing down and saying, if you want to feel trust towards, she was talking about your spouse. If you want to feel trust towards your spouse, you have to trust them with something. It's like, man, why, why is it that the most obvious statements are the things that miss us completely? In my work, we, we deal with that. The things she's talking about, we deal with it a lot, but I kind of orient, usually I orient differently. I'm usually orienting, am I being trustworthy? Am I building trust with you? And, and to hear her say, oh man, there's actually, there's actually the other side of the story too. That often in our relationships, in our marriages, in our relationship with God, we say, God, give me faith which is a good thing to ask for. 
but are, how much are we asking God just just deposit it into me. Just give it to me because there's, there's a mountain I want to climb and it scares me. So will you, will you make it not scary and say, oh, that's not how it works. If you want to feel safe in risk, you have to take the risk and then discover that it was safe, right? We have to have the experience of safety. I told you, Pastor Leanne, just hang out with her and she gives you great, really good content. It reminded me, after, after that Sunday, it reminded me, I was thinking back to the moment when I was teaching my daughter to ride on two wheels, and she, was, she, had, the, she had the training wheels, she'd been, she'd been getting comfortable with those for a while, and I was kind of like, I don't know why, I, I always think my kids are behind, so she was six, I'm sure this is super normal, but I'm like pressuring her a little bit, I'm like, don't you see the other kids? <laughs> I didn't probably say it that way. And so she got to the point where she's like, I'm ready. I want to do it. I said, okay, just so you know, if I take off the training wheels, they stay off. I'm not putting them back on. And she said, yeah, 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 yeah. Because she's six and she doesn't understand anything. And we start. I gave her a little, like a brief tutorial. Uh, In hindsight, it was far too brief. I understand that now. Don't judge. And then I started you know, that introductory where you hold onto the bicycle and you're basically the training wheels. And in like 10 minutes of doing that, she's starting to get more comfortable and my back hurts. So I started like, are you ready? And can I let go? You want me to let go? And she said, yes. She said, yes. And so I let go and she crashed immediately. And I was like, I knew that was going to happen, right? Like we're prepared. I remember learning to ride a bike and I run over to her, pick her up and she gets up mad at me, which I wasn't ready for. And she said, you dropped me. I said, you told me to let go. I understand what's happening. You weren't expect. It was too brief. I get it. There wasn't enough tutorial. Did I not say put your legs down when you, okay. And she wouldn't, she didn't even let me finish my sentence. She just like ran in the house and I followed her in and she was tattling on my, on to, about me to my wife. I said, are you ready to go, babe? Let's, let's, go, let's go get at it. And she said, no, put the, put the training wheels back on. And I said, oh, I am so sorry, sweetie. I'm not doing it. And what I explained to her is, I'm not going to put them back on because you can do this. You can ride this bike. I can get you there. There are very few times in your life I say, I will promise you an outcome. I promise you I can get you on these wheels. And the part I didn't explain to her is also because I don't ever want to accidentally send the message to my daughter that if you crash, it means you shouldn't have taken the risk, right? Like if you fall over, it means you shouldn't have been on that road. I'm not going to teach you that. And so she said, okay, in that case, I retire from cycling. She was done. And I said, I'm not putting them back on. So whenever you're ready. And she said, I'll never, I'm done. And she called my bluff because it was like two months and I'm like pointing out and, and finally I could see there was a little like, there was an open, there was a crack. And so I said, okay, sweetie, I understand it was too brief. I understand I should have I coached you better, but I want you to know I can get you there. The thing is, I can't get you, I can't get you to riding the bike unless you trust me with the process of riding your bike. I, you might fall down again. More than likely, you're gonna put your legs down next time. Hello, you're, come on. Um, but to get, you to, to get you to the finish line, you have to trust me. You gotta put your trust in me. You're not gonna feel safe unless you actually take the risk. And it's, it's the thing that, that I was noticing in 
Exodus, as I was reading this several weeks ago, that I was like, oh my goodness, this is what, this is exactly what we see in counseling. This is exactly what we see in relationships that are broken and hurting is that we get a wound often before we even get to the relationship. We get wounded and then we get into the relationship and the beginning is, is exciting. The beginning feels amazing. The beginning feels like safety. And then normal life happens. We disappoint. We let each other down and the wound sends off the alarm system and we say, oh, I made a mistake. And so what we, what we usually demand from the people in our life is say, okay, I will trust you again when I feel trust, when you show me that you're trustworthy. And we, we, we don't even know it, but we put up a kind of wall. In Exodus, there's a moment that we're all super familiar with. And, and I, just, I just read it different this year that Leading up to the Exodus, it's, the book is named after this moment, actually. Leading up to the Exodus, God sends Moses into Egypt, and he sends uh, demonstration after demonstration, right? Massive demonstrations of God's power. Um, let him go. Pharaoh says no. Flies. Frogs. Locusts. Rivers of blood. It culminates. The climax of this is Moses warns Pharaoh, all your firstborn are going to die if you don't let Israel go. And he refuses. And this massive, insane demonstration of God's power. And it's so dramatic. It sends so much terror into Egypt that, that Moses instructs Israel. I, I never noticed this before. Moses instructs Israel, ask the Egyptians for provisions. And the Egyptians are so eager to get Israel out because they are saying, we cannot stand against the power of your God that they pour out gold and weapons. And it actually says that Israel left plundering Egypt. That's the kind of, Israel plundered Egypt. And they walk out and it's just, I just imagine Israel was feeling itself in this moment. Israel was feeling good. That's right, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like they... This massive demonstration, Egypt says go, which brings us to this moment where it's, it's right, as, it's right as, as Pharaoh said, get out of here. Israel plunders. And it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. Everybody say shorter. shorter. I never noticed that before. There was, a, there was a direct path to the promise. Because God, what, what it made me realize is, oh, like, before this even happens, God had already told Abraham, actually, I'm going to give you the land of the Canaanites. So God had a vision. He wasn't just like, let's leave and we'll find out where we end up, right? Like God said, I'm, I'm taking you to, to a land of giants. They are dangerous. They are going to be scary. And you are not just going to live in the land of the promise. You are going to take the territory. You are actually going to be, you, Israel, are going to be a demonstration to the world of my power and my provision and my protection. But you're not ready. If I take you straight to the promised land, if I take you straight to the land of the Canaanites, you are going to run into the Philistines. This is what it says on the road to the Philistines. So God, or I'm sorry, for God said, if they face war, they will change their minds. This is, remember, this is, this is after 10 massive demonstrations of God's power. This is like the dating season for Israel, right? Like God shows up for Israel in a massive way and, and Israel feels had, they feel held, they feel protected. They feel like our God is a God of power. And God knows that this trust is so fragile that if, if you face something that looks too scary, you will actually choose bondage. 
You will, t- you will run from me and you'll go back to bondage. It goes on to say, so God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. That's the NIV. And that's a little, that's a little strange to me because first it says, if they face war, they'll turn and run. And then it says, they left ready for battle. So I looked it up in other translations. And I think it's the NASB that says they, they walked out of Egypt in rank like an army. So they were, they were walking in formation. Um, I think NLT says something like they walked out of Egypt and they insert one word, like an army, ready for battle. Israel, remember, Israel just plundered Egypt. They were feeling themselves. They were walking out feeling strong. They walked out looking like an army that was ready for battle. But how many of y'all know, there's, some, there's a big difference between an army that is battle-hardened, who has faced adversity, who has trusted God, who's actually walked into danger and said, I'm gonna believe that God, and, and experience God protecting them and carrying through, and an army that looks like an army ready for battle. There's a big difference, and God knows that you guys are feeling good, but it's, it's paper thin, this, this trust. This trust is fragile. And so what happens is, we have a moment where God shows up in power. And the power is so life-altering. It's so, it's so clear. Like the, the trust that I have in God, like the moment where God shows up is so powerful that we forget, oh, the power actually just begins the process. And because the power doesn't absolve us from the process, because the power leads us into wilderness so that God can reform our heart, God does empower what we cannot do for ourselves, right? God delivers us from financial bondage or he delivers us from illness. He does things in our lives that we don't have the power to do. But then he says, okay, that that gift, that miracle in your life is actually going to mean nothing unless we do the deep formation of trust. Because what's going to happen is, you're going to wake up tomorrow, and your marriage is still going to be hard. And you're going to say, oh, man, I thought I really meant it this time. Or, oh, man, I thought their apology was real. And we doubt, we doubt the, the way that God demonstrated and showed up. Are you, guys, are you guys with me? I don't even know where I'm at right now. So God led them around the long way. So it's, it's, for me, this is really one of those empowering things. Learning that, that God actually intentionally led them into the wilderness... He led them the long way on purpose, helps me realize that was actually an act of love. Because if I actually bring you straight to the promise, if you're not ready for the promise, that blessing is actually going to send you back to bondage. That blessing will actually send you back into your fear. You haven't corrected those mindsets. You haven't built the trust that you need to stand. And so you go back to what feels like false safety. Um, There was... A moment that actually reminded me of this really recently. Uh, it was last year. It was, it was probably around a year ago. A guy came in, and um, a man who's really dear to my heart. He uh, goes to Awaken. He goes to another campus, and he found Awaken maybe two, two and a half years ago. And he he didn't know God. He found he found God here at Awaken, and God was just radically just transforming his life really on like high speed. And he was a little bit older. I think he was in his 40s, and he had a lot of, of just shame and a lot of like insecurity around his finances. He spent the the first part of his life not really believing for or working towards any sort of territory, not really believing that God had something great for him because he didn't know. God. God. And so he gets into this community and he's building these amazing relationships. And he said, like, man, I, I, I almost hate going over to these houses of people I love. And I know they love me so much. I feel so connected to this community, but I'll walk into the house and I'll see this. It just makes me feel like 
what's wrong? I missed the boat. I'm behind. I'm not good enough. And, and he's working through this, and he did something really courageous. He, he got a new job because the, his old job that he'd been at for a while couldn't quite pay the bills. And he realized once he got a new job, even though it was more money and it create, created better provision, it still wasn't enough to get him into the kind of home that he wanted. And, and it was interesting, as he was telling me about this frustration, it was like this, this guilt would leak out because he kept saying, I know God gave me this job. And he said it several times. And he said it was like, I'm not allowed to be frustrated with this job because I know God gave it to me. That was kind of the, the subtext. And I was like, dude, pause real quick. You keep saying God gave me this job. And here's, here's, how I, here's how it lands for me. When I hear you say it, it's like, I'm not, allowed, I'm not allowed to be frustrated with this job. Is it, is it possible that God gave you 13 jobs and you chose the job that you thought you were worthy of, that God actually brought lots of opportunity to your world, and you chose the one that you had the faith to walk into, and God said, okay, if that's what you're ready for, that's the, that's the, the mantle, right? That's the weight, that's the glory that you are prepared to carry. I'm gonna meet you right there, I'm gonna, and we're gonna build the next step of trust because God's thinking, man, I've got something 10 times better for you, but you're not even gonna apply to that job until I build enough trust and build my identity into your heart. And we say, man that even when there's a success, we wake up the next day and we realize that we're still in process. And then it causes us to what? It causes us to doubt the way that God has showed up. It causes us to doubt maybe like there's something wrong with me or, or there's hidden sin. Or, or as, as uh, John was talking in the, in the um, tithe message in the first service, he said, or maybe all blessing comes with correction, and the correction actually prepares you for the next blessing. Maybe the wilderness is actually a place of love. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? There was a moment for me several years ago when um, you've probably heard me talk about it before. I'm, I am a therapist because uh, God just wrecked my life in therapy, that God put me in in a situation where my skeletons and my sexual addiction, all these hidden behaviors, all this shame, all these things came to light. And I was about two and a half years married and I came really close to ending my marriage and God just did all this rest restorative work in, in our therapeutic process. And so I'm coming out of this and, and there's so many of those hidden behaviors, like I call it 95%. You can't really quantify these things, but I call it 95%, meaning 95% of those behaviors, 95% of, uh, of, the, of the junk that I hid to cope, the places that felt like false safety to me, are you tracking? 95% I abolished. And I got to a place where I got really comfortable with this 5%, because 5%, you look at 5% compared to 95%, and you're like, man, these behaviors are nothing compared to what I used to do. And they, they stuck, and I thought, you know, you know what will probably happen is... Um, it'd probably just take me some time. I just need to get used to this and I'll get stronger and I'll be more disciplined. I'll be more focused. And then one year turned into like two years, turned into like three or four years. And I remember talking to my therapist. I still have a therapist to this day. I do not encourage you ever to go to a therapist who doesn't have a therapist. That's a, that's a different talk though. That's a different talk. And I remember the therapist, my therapist at the time, reflecting back to me. He's like, Brian, you keep, you keep focusing on this kind of failure and you keep focusing on like how you need to be stronger. Have you, is it possible that that 5% actually doesn't represent willpower so much as it represents fear? What if it represents that you believe God is able to meet your needs 
What if it's like there's this 5% of this compulsive, this, this, these behaviors that you feel shame about? And it's like, man, there's, there's a form of false peace. There's a form of either gratification or pleasure or peace or numbing that if I actually let go of those things, what, it's, it's that last part. I don't know if God could feel that, though. I don't know if my tank would be all the way full. Because if I let go of that, like what happens if, when Sarah's really mad at me and she won't talk to me for a few hours? What happens like when work is really stressful? What happens when I'm really overwhelmed and I need to numb? And the realization, I actually, by preserving the 5%, I actually build this wall that God can't show me what it looks like for him to meet my needs. That it's, it's a way of preserving. That God says, when he says, no, I'm not going to take you straight to the promise. We need to go through the most. Why? Because if I give you a blessing before you're ready for it, it will actually preserve the mindset. It'll actually preserve the bondage. If I give you something that you're not ready for. Leaving Egypt for God is the easy part. Your circumstances that you're walking through, for God, that's actually the easy part. That's not the part God is concerned about. Like we get so overwhelmed. We look at the debt or we look at the illness or we look at the thing and we say, oh my gosh, how will God ever? And God's saying, man, the circumstances, that's the easy part. I, I could have a check in your mailbox tomorrow if, if I thought that that was best for you. I could absolve the problem tomorrow, but if I absolve the problem without you going through the process, we preserve the bondage. You were with me? Taking back to it's, it's that when I turn to Livy and I say, I, I can get you to the bicycle, but I need you to trust me. In this case, with your little physical body, I need you to trust me that you're going to live through this. Our ability to trust determines the length of the road. God does not make the road any longer than our willingness to put our trust in him. And, and just like Pastor Leanne was saying, that trust... We, we sometimes we reverse these two things. We think we're, feel, we're talking about the act of trust when really we're talking about the noun, the feeling of trust. And God's saying, trust me. What God is saying is entrust into me. Put something in your life into my strength. Are we tracking? Yeah. There, was a, there was a new couple that I did an intake with um, last month. And the couple came in and they were referred by their individual therapist. So they've been working for a little while with individual therapists that uh, basically the, the wife discovered that the husband had some addiction, had some se hidden sexual behaviors. And upon discovering these things, as most of the time it happens, their world kind of unravels and they got into this individual therapy. She wanted to focus on her hurt. He wanted to focus on what he was going through. And they said, Brian, our, our therapist said, we need to connect with you because we're ready for disclosure. What disclosure means is when there's really extensive hidden behaviors, instead of just like I do X and it happens periodically, I can, I can explain this to you really briefly. When there's really extensive hidden behaviors, what'll happen because addiction is far more, as far as your brain is concerned, it's far more a security blanket than it is a pathology. Addiction is, is a trap door in your brain that says safety feels too threatened, stress, danger, uncertainty feels too high. I don't know how to tolerate this. And the addiction kicks in and it says, here's your exit. Here's your exit from that uncertainty. And so what will happen when you're trying to do a disclosure and there's a lot to tell is that that trap door kicks in and I get 20%. And I say, that's it. And then two weeks later or three weeks later, I'm getting eaten away and I... I, I 
well, I didn't tell you this, and I give you 20 more percent. And we go through this process that we call re-traumatization. So what we ask the couple to do is very vulnerable, but we basically say, you know, spouse, person struggling with the addiction, I need you guys to actually not talk about it. Don't promise them that you've told them everything. Stop, because you're not ready to. And so what I want you to do is you're going to work with somebody to support you while you're waiting, and you're going to work with somebody to do what we call a full disclosure. We, it's a formal process. We walk them through. We get everything down on paper, and then we sit down with support, and we read it. And sometimes it takes an hour, hour and a half. And I said, that's what they've been doing. So when they came to me, they said, Brian, we're at the point of disclosure. I said, oh, that's great. How long have you been in this process? And they said, oh, it started about three months ago. It's like, oh, my goodness. You guys have been sitting with all of this unnamed fear she doesn't know what she doesn't know. He doesn't know how is she going to react. What will she do, say, think of me when she knows for three months? If you want to just, as a reference point, when I'm doing that process, I'm shooting for two to three weeks. Most clinical standards would be four to six weeks max, and they've been living in that uncertainty. It's a kind of attachment stress that our brain does not know what to do with for three months. And I, I, had, to, I had to pause, and I say, man, what what. How did, you, how did it take this long? Why are we still here? And he said, well, Brian, my therapist has been really concerned about me because every single time we get, we've set the date twice and every single time they get close to the day, he, he says, oh, I, I remembered more or, or I'm, I'm not sure about this. And more importantly, anxiety spikes and depression spikes and thoughts of harming himself, they all just shoot up as he gets close to the disclosure date, gets close to coming out of hiding and being fully known by his spouse. And so I said, okay, well, when's the date? He said, well, we, we bumped it the second time. We don't have a date. He said, okay, I gotta, I gotta pause this right now. I cannot work with you unless you set a date. He said, and he starts to protest. And he starts to tell me why, why they can't rush in. I said, I, I get it, man. I get it. It's terrifying. I get it. But, but you need to hear me that I know where this road leads because if we don't set a date, in a couple of months, you're going to get busier, and then you're going to start missing appointments, and then a couple months after that, you're going to say, you know what, Brian, we're really busy, so we're going to, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to schedule when we have more time, and I'm never going to see you again, and in two years, she's going to discover something new, and the marriage will probably be over then. So what I need you to do is I need you to set a date, or I can't be part of this, because if you don't, you are going to build a house in the wilderness. You're going to put down roots right here in the in-between. And you're going to say, because this is so scary, I'm going to avoid the thing. I'm not going to take the leap of faith, right? I'm not going to trust. I'm not going to end trust into this process, into God's love, into my spouse. And I'm actually going to practice fear. And we put down roots in the in-between. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. When we look back at, at Israel, the next step, so they just walked out feeling really good. The next step is a little harder. Just a few, a few sentences down in chapter, or in verse 21, God is trying to like demonstrate to them, I understand how hard this is. It says, they just left their last camp and it says, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And what God is doing is he's saying, you don't understand. You're feeling really good. You just plundered, right? You just walked out of Egypt. You're feeling, you're feeling really awesome. You don't understand how fragile the safety you feel with me is because you still think like a slave, 
you still think that the first sign of danger means I've been abandoned or the first sign of pain means I'm not important and the first sign of fear means I can't rely on you. You don't know it, but I know it. And so I'm gonna be a pillar, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke during the day so that when that, when that anxiety comes, when that panic comes, you're gonna be able to look up and you're gonna see I'm right there. Yeah. And it occurred to me when I was processing this, I was like, man, it's so beautiful. It's so powerful that when God was giving the vision to Pastor Jurgen for so many campuses in San Diego, he described them. Pastor Jurgen said he saw them as altars of fire. That there's literally going to be, I don't, I don't care where you are in San Diego, there's going to be a stone's throw. You're going to say, I don't care what the panic is, I don't care what the fear is, the isolation. You're going to be able to look up and there's going to be a community within reach that's going to be say, you don't have faith for your life, but we do. Come, borrow, borrow our faith. And so God is saying, okay, I know how fragile this is. I just, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be this physical man. You're going to be able to look up and you're going to be able to see it. And he goes on. And it's one of those things where I think Israel in that moment, I think they were probably saying, Lord, what we really want is for you to take away our fear. Right? What, we really, what would be really helpful to us is that the next time we feel panic, we feel fear, we feel distrust, we feel like running back to Egypt, if you could just take away the fear, that would be really helpful. And God is saying, if I took away the fear, it would actually never prepare you for the promise. If I took away the fear, you'd actually maintain the mindset, like I was saying before. When uh, my wife and I get stuck, that's a nice way of saying we, we have a fight. When my wife and I get into a fight, we have, very different, we have very different fight styles. We have very different like panic buttons, right? I escalate like a normal person and she, <laughs> she, she shuts down. Now, that's can be really frustrating. Like, did anybody in here grow up with like a yeller in the house? Like maybe mom or dad or in my house, everybody, we yelled. And so yelling is, it's chaotic. It's definitely like a kind of an emotional verbal violence for sure. But if you're used to it, you're like, I get it. There is nothing more frustrating than as your volume goes up, their volume goes down. So as my wife gets angry, she gets quieter, and it infuriates me because the madder I get, the more like insane I look compared to her <laughs> false calm. It's really... And what always happens when we get into that stuck is that the madder we get and the more frustrated we get, we're both waiting for the other person to take off their armor so it can show me that it's safe for me to take off mine. We had a fight recently where, it's a fight we've had lots of times. Um, <laughs> where because of my work, because I'm client focused, there's a couple of nights, usually two to three nights a week where I miss dinner with the kids because I'm at the office, dinner with the family. And it's something my wife and I really prayerfully considered and we've built our schedule with a lot of intentionality. We really believe God has guided it and it feels like this sacred thing I'm missing, right? It feels like this really hard thing to miss. And so whenever there's an opportunity, like maybe like appointments cancel or something and I run home and they've already eaten, um, it's hard not to be like, that makes sense because I was at work and I didn't tell you, but I'm still mad at you <laughs> for eating without me. It's, it's a fight we've had several times. Recently, my wife was actually out of town um, and we had... Uh, a family member covering, covering dinners when I was at the office. 
and there was a, a night where I'm normally home. And my wife knows that, but the family member didn't know that. And so I get home, and they've already eaten, and I'm feeling a lot of feelings, and I expressed how I would like things to work differently in the future to the family member. But I did it well. You'd have been proud of me. It's okay. And then I got on the phone, and I was honest with Sarah about how I was feeling about this situation. And I wasn't attacking Sarah, right? I was just expressing frustration about the way that the family member handled it. And as I'm expressing this frustration, which is usually like safe territory, it's usually like Sarah's like down and she can be frustrated with me and she can validate me and we can get out. As I'm, frustrated, as I'm expressing this, she's getting like frustrated with me. And I'm like, what the heck? And, I, and I, our, tense, our tenseness is just escalating. And I never actually accused her of anything. But we don't have to, do we? Our tone of voice is actually the, the accuser, really, before, before we even get to verbal. There's this incredible thing that, they, that they've been able to actually observe in real time with neuroscans is that our brain responds seven times faster to affective data, meaning your tone of voice, wow. your facial expression, your body language, seven times faster than it does to verbal content. So what that means is uh, when I say to my wife, I said I'm not angry. <laughs> Before I have finished the sentence, my wife's body has physiologically responded to the attack. It's, it happens instantaneously. They can actually watch it happen. And, and the crazy thing about it is like, the, the, physio, the physiological response is full body. It's, it's stress hormones. There's, there's these micro muscle systems around your major muscle systems that actually like force blood into your major muscle systems with a little bit of adrenaline so that your body can fight off the bear that isn't in the room. It's not helpful. <laughs> and so when we get into this, this back and forth, what it comes down to is who's going to go first? Who's going to show their vulnerability first? What I love about that pillar of cloud is that God is saying, I'm not actually going to just absolve you of the fear. I'm not going to take it away supernaturally because I need, I need experiences of safety to absolve that fear. I need you to actually experience safety with me. That's the kind of safety that will stand up against the army. But I am going to stay one step ahead of you. I'm going to be a pillar of cloud and you're going to be able to look up and see me. I'm going to be right there, I'm gonna go first. That God doesn't take away fear. Love doesn't take away fear, but love does go first. And when those moments, when my wife does, and, and she'll say, oh, you know what, we'll be like in our battle. I say, you know what, I think I'm really just feeling frustrated. I'm stressed at work. I'm sorry, sweetie. I can totally understand why this would be hard. Because we've done this a few times, I'm, I'm thankful for that, but I'm also like, dang it, she was healthy first. <laughs> so frustrating. There's a little voice in my head. It's like, good job, Dr. Brian. Way to, way to lead. Because you realize in that moment, you realize in that moment that the person walking in vulnerability is the person that's leading the conversation. And we're both waiting for the other person to go first. The, the raw kind of unrefined fear that, that Israel is still carrying is revealed one chapter later. In chapter 14, and if you like it, let me just encourage you guys, go back and read 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, those five chapters, because you see in every chapter, you'll see this, it's insane, you'll see a panic and then a provision 
a panic, and a provision. And again and again and again, you see Israel turn against God when the panic activates. And then God says, okay, I get it. And he provides for them with this patient love. And they, they usually, it's usually like accented by a song or a dance about how God is our refuge. And then the next chapter, two days later. So this moment, this moment right here, they walked out of, they walked out of Egypt. Egypt was big and they were on foot. They did not have like the the Emerge RV system at the time. So they're walking out of Egypt, and, and most scholars would say this is probably less than a week. This is probably somewhere between three, four, five days later after the plunder. And Pharaoh wakes up, and he realizes, oh, what have I done? Not only did I release my free labor, which is a bummer, I think far deeper than that, this display of God's power made me look foolish. And so Pharaoh, enraged, sends his troops after Israel. This is the first, real, the first real threat that Israel has faced since actually following God. And it says in 14.10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. Everybody say terrified. terrified. And they cried out, to the Lord, which is a very nice way to characterize what they say. When I think of crying out, I'm terrified and I cried out, I think of like, help. <laughs> they say, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? And they show this contempt and this accusation towards Moses and God. Why did you bring us out to the desert desire. Didn't we say to you, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? They actually spent 400 years crying out to God to save them. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die into the desert. And what, what is so hard to see here, because I have read that as long as I've been reading the Bible, and every single time I read it, I judge Israel up and down. Because I'm thinking, you guys, this is like five days later. It was what, it was Tuesday, and you saw this massive demonstration of God's power, and then you run into a sea, and you don't know the way around, and you don't know what God's going to do, and you immediately say, you lied to us, you've let us down, we're not safe, and what we don't get to see is that Israel is still operating in the fear and the mindset of slavery, and so they see the danger and their brain panics, and panic doesn't come out as vulnerable. They, they're not able to say to Moses what would have been authentic, would have been said, as we look at this situation, we are terrified, we don't know what to do. What they, do, what they show Moses is anger. And it's one of the most destructive traps in our, in our intimate relationships, is that we think of anger as the way of asserting an unmet need. When anger actually is a very healthy emotion, God gave you anger. Anger is a protector. So when you see something happen to somebody else that's not okay and you respond in anger, that's anger operating appropriately. When somebody wrongs you and you say no to the wrong, to the violation, that's anger appropriate. But the problem is in this situation, when we're talking about a relationship where we deeply want intimacy and reassurance, instead of actually inviting them to protect us, we protect ourselves against them. And we pose them in this polar oppositional posture. And just like my wife, when she's hearing me express this frustration about how the world let me down and I missed dinner, she's the one feeling attacked instead of hearing that Brian is just feeling sad. 
Moses responds to the people. God directs him with his patience and he says, don't be afraid. Isn't it incredible how God doesn't even address the accusation? He doesn't even worry about it. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, this is so powerful, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And there's a really powerful lesson here is that we, we need to understand when we are in panic, when we are in fear, when we get that anxiety button pushed, and there's, there's like a deep pain that we don't know how to name, it's going to come out in one of two ways. If I don't know how to name the fear, if I don't know how to name the vulnerability and the pain, it's going to come out in what, because when your brain is overwhelmed, when there's a level of stress, you, your brain doesn't know what to do with it effectively. There's a couple of things that happen. I'm not going to nerd out too much, but basically I say it this way. You either go right or left. You go into your right brain or your left brain. If you go into your right brain, you become deeply identified with the protective emotion and you usually express anger or criticism, defensiveness. If you're somebody who goes into their left brain, you try and compartmentalize and dissociate and you try, you, you pull away, you withdraw, you numb and you stonewall. And so the brain really only has two bad options unless, unless we're able to access what's beneath that self-protection. Are you with me? And the, it's, it's amazing to me that in this moment, Moses' instructions, he says, stand firm, don't run back to Egypt. Don't go into your left brain. Don't shut down. Don't pretend that you're not scared. Don't, don't run away from the thing that feels scary. He also says, the Lord is going to fight for you, meaning don't pick up your sword. You don't fight the battle because if you fight the battle, you're going to think, A, either I did it or B, you're going to be protecting yourself against a situation where God wants to demonstrate his trustworthiness. And we do it in our marriages all the time. We do it in our closest relationships all the time. That when we go back to that, that moment I was talking about with dinner, Like I said, my, in this particular occasion, my wife was the first one that said, you know, I can tell why I'm not more empathetic. I'm really sorry. I'm feeling stressed. And, and the situation was, she was going through a really hard, a really hard moment. It's, it's actually been a pretty prolonged thing, but she's in a much better place with her extended family. She's lost relationships because she's been operating in her integrity. And we were slowing down and we're taking off her armor. And there's this moment when we're no longer kind of in, in a, against posture anymore. And my wife's eyes are filling up with tears and say, you know, I think I've just felt so alone talking about her family. And it makes me so angry. And hearing her express that and, and being in a place where I could tell what she was doing, she wasn't, she wasn't expressing that protection towards me. She was inviting me to support her we just wept and I held her. And it's one of those moments where maybe Egypt isn't gone out of your life. The issue in my wife's life is, my wife's life is, is still resolving itself. But I don't think we are ever gonna face that Egyptian again. I don't think we're ever gonna face that moment where we stand off against each other and she's operating out of this protective anger because she feels so, because the safety of God's love and my ability to respond in that moment, she was able to connect to what is beneath the surface. Are you with me? And she was able to name it and she was able to feel comforted and safe in the fear. 
And though that's how, it's not that, that we confront it once and Egypt is off the map, but we confront it once and Egypt gets smaller. We don't face that Egyptian again. Are you tracking? In Philippians it says, that be anxious for nothing, but through all things, through prayer, petition, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And this is something so powerful. It says, and a peace that surpasses your understanding will guard your mind and your heart in Christ Jesus. That when I read that scripture now, having done the work that I've done, I realize I, I think I understand what, what Paul is talking about. You see, I know, what, I know what a peace that I understand looks like now. A peace that I understand is numbing. A peace that I understand is withdrawing, showing a false front, hiding something, turning, turning to something else other than support and looking for a false form of connection to soothe myself, right? That's a peace that makes sense to Brian. A peace that my wife understands looks a little bit different. And God is saying, we get stuck in the wilderness. You are stuck in the wilderness because you're still looking for a peace that makes sense to you. And what God is inviting you into is to do what he's modeling because love disarms. Love entrusts, love goes first, and love disarms. If you will disarm, I can actually give you an experience of safety that will begin to uproot that fear from the bottom. Are you with me? That, that false peace, it can look like a lot of different things. Like if you grew up in a home where you, you, hurt, you hurt somebody's feelings and you saw rage or you saw control, or they manipulated you with their emotions. They probably didn't do it on purpose, but that's, what they, that's, that's the piece that they knew. Or maybe it looked like silence. That God, on a day like today, what God is inviting you to say is, I want you to look at the reactivity. I want you to look at the armor that you put on. What does this self-protection look like? Does it look like pulling away? Does it look like telling yourself a story about why that person can't be trusted? Does it look like expressing criticism or defensiveness? Because... If you just try and white knuckle that behavior and say, I'm not gonna do that anymore, the roots actually get deeper and it just springs up. But if we actually are able to access, and this is, this is one of the powerful questions that I use in my work. I say, okay, we, in moments of pain and overwhelm, what we tend to do is we tend to orient around the emotion, the emotion that I feel towards them. And that's what we call secondary. That's my armor emotion. It's the emotion that helps me, protects me from feeling the thing that this situation or their behavior or the moment leaves me feeling about me, which is the wound. And so in a moment like that, when we're able to identify what our armor looks like, we can ask that question. We can ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, I want you to illuminate. Show me the fear, the pain, the vulnerability that I don't know how to, how to integrate and own so that I can bring that to you. Are you with me? Let me just ask for one second, just close your eyes, bow your head. And for those of you that God is stirring right now, and as I'm, as I'm walking through this, God is showing you what your armor looks like. He's showing you that there's, there's, a, there's a false peace that you're reaching for, and he wants to take you to a deeper safety than you've experienced before. Can I just ask you, I wanna pray for you. Will you raise your hand? bless you guys. I see you guys. I see you all. Lord, I pray for every hand in this room and I pray that you would empower 
and strengthen the courage that it took to even reflect and to hear your voice, to hear your Holy Spirit and to own the fear that is buried. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet them right now and it would illuminate and it would comfort that you would send reassurance and your love into that moment, even as they sit there. God, we know that this is the beginning. This is not the end. You would reassure them every day as they go through process that your power never left and that you would bring them back to this moment, this moment of insight and illumination. You say, I'm gonna pull this out with you and I'm gonna walk with you and my arm's gonna be around you. God, I pray for freedom. I pray in Jesus' name that any strength, any stronghold that the enemy or fear holds in their life would be broken and that you would begin the process of true freedom and true love. We pray these things in your son's name. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.